Good morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning, it comes from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. So Acts 8, verses 1 to 8, page 916 in the Pew Bible. This is the word of the Lord. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. All right, you may have a seat. Good morning, brothers and sisters. This morning, we're going to consider the passage that we had planned on considering last Sunday morning, okay? So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts 1. And the reason I planned on us considering this text last Sunday is because Acts 1.8 is actually proof that crossing barriers as disciples of Jesus, if He's our Savior, if He's our Lord, crossing barriers and divides, whether they be ethnic, racial, socioeconomic, whatever it is, for the sake of the gospel is not optional. It's not optional. So we are where we are as far as our community and demographics We don't have to force it in some weird way, but the issue of crossing barriers for the sake of the gospel is not optional. Okay, it's not some, you know, buzz phrase, some trendy thing we're trying to do. This is a part of what the Spirit of God empowers us to do by the power of the gospel, by the power of His Spirit, okay? So, yeah, let's, (laughs) enough maybe with uh, introductory thoughts. So let's look at Acts 1 and read verses 1 to 8, and then we can dive in here. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke, and this is his sequel, the book of Acts. And he writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then he ascended to heaven. Okay? So, this is going to be a call to get out of our comfort zone and cross dividing lines that can be scary sometimes, right? Fear came up last week. Several times in the conversation, we can feel weak, we can feel inadequate, we're afraid of how people will respond or react. Well, here is power for that. Okay, look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In fact, again, when these fears that... that uh, that we talked about last Sunday were kicked up. Pastor Parks, remember, he quoted 2 Timothy 1.7. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. Okay, so point number one this morning. There's three points. You'll see them on the screen in the bulletin as well. Point number one is empowered by the Spirit. So this book is often called Acts of the Apostles, right? Is that what it says on the top of your in your Bible on page 909 or whatever page it is in your Bible. But look at how the book begins. I don't know if that title is the most accurate. Um, so in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day was taken up. So what might be the significance of that phrase, all that Jesus began to do and teach? Jesus began to do and teach. That's the focus of the gospel, according to Luke. Acts is the continuation of what Jesus did and taught. And he did it through his apostles by the power of the Spirit. So we could probably more accurately title the book, The Acts of Jesus Christ by His Spirit through His Apostles in the Early Church. But that would be a little cumbersome. So Acts of the Apostles will work, okay? So Acts 1.8, the first thing we notice is that we need power. And Jesus aims to give that power to us. So once for all, in a unique way, the Spirit descended on the disciples for the first time in this new covenant, new sort of way at Pentecost. And if you become a Christian, you receive the Spirit of God. God indwells you by His Spirit. You are a living temple, okay, and you are empowered in that sense. But we can oftentimes just dismiss the empowerment of the Spirit. We can give way to fear and be more controlled by our fears than by the Spirit of God. So, again, we need to realize that this power is available to us. So, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and it's power for a purpose that you would be my witnesses. So Jesus sent his spirit so that we would have power for his mission, so that we would be his witnesses. Do you see that? He says, my witnesses. So when you think of being a faithful disciple to you know, share the gospel with people in your life, how does that make you feel whenever you think of that? <laughs> you feel ill-equipped? You feel intimidated? You feel inadequate? Scared? Perfect. <laughs> you are. So am I. But King Jesus is able by His Spirit to empower you and to empower me to be a faithful 
witness. I mean, you know, it's really encouraging. Even the lion-hearted Apostle Paul talked like this about when he went to Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 2.1, he says, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So go ahead. Have a low estimation of yourself and your ability. But we've got to push back on any inclination in our hearts to doubt Jesus' ability by His Spirit to empower us, to use us for His mission. Okay, We're not the power of God for saving anybody, but the Gospel is. Romans 1 that we heard this morning already. Romans 1.16. So Jesus takes weak, inadequate vessels like you and me and uses them. And when he does, who gets the glory? He does. It's obviously his power at work. So it's this perfect setup to show that his grace is sufficient, that his power is perfected in our weakness. Okay? So look back at Acts 1.6. We need to make sure we get our ideas about power from Jesus, not from this world. And the disciples even needed this early on even with all the stuff that Jesus had taught them, even with the resurrection, they still had this sense that, that if Jesus was going to set up his kingdom, it was going to be immediate, physical, literal, like crush the Romans, set up your kingdom. And he said, no, 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 no. This is a spiritual kingdom that's going to spread like leaven. So verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you, so are you going to establish your kingdom? Uh, I'm not going to answer that question right now, but you are going to establish my kingdom, and I'm going to empower you to do it. Do you see the flow of thought here? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's how the kingdom's going to spread. That's how the kingdom's going to be established. So I love this quote by John Stott. He says, it's important to remember that, this, that his promise, Jesus' promise, that the disciples would receive power was part of his reply to their question about the kingdom. For the exercise of power is inherent in the concept of a kingdom. But power in God's kingdom is different from power in human kingdoms. The reference to the Holy Spirit defines its nature. The kingdom of God is his rule set up in the lives of his people by the Holy Spirit. It is spread by witnesses, not soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, and by the work of the Spirit, not by force of arms, political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. Okay, so it's clear that Jesus died, rose again, so that we would have good news, something to witness about, and it's equally clear that Jesus ascended and sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to proclaim that good news. So we're empowered by the Spirit. Second point, to be Jesus' witnesses. 1-8, you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come, has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. We've got to stop and ponder this, okay? The word witness is really significant. The disciples, and by extension us, we are witnesses 
We're not salesmen or saleswomen. We're witnesses. We're not advice givers. The gospel is news, not advice. Okay? So think about this with me. The gospel is news. It's not a product we're trying to sell. We're not salesmen. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to our marketing campaign. Okay? The gospel is news. It's something that actually happened. So we're witnesses, not marketers. We need to give the gospel to people straight. So we can't make it more palatable by adjusting it to people's liking. We can't soft pedal certain truths about the gospel that aren't as palatable to to people, whether it's sin or the judgment of God or a call to repentance. Okay, Jesus is not just some life-enhancing product. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So there are a lot of ways that sometimes people share the gospel or there's preachers that are on TV or whatever that can make Jesus like a means to some other end. And that's just, I mean, raw pragmatism at best. You know, come to Jesus and in some versions you'll be healthy and wealthy. That's not the gospel. Come to Jesus, in more subtle versions, he'll fix your marriage. Now, Jesus can help fix your marriage, but that's not why he died. Ultimately, that's not our deepest problem. Come to Jesus, you won't be lonely anymore. Come to Jesus, you'll have peace and joy. Well, of course, real peace and joy comes from Jesus. But if you're using Jesus as a means, like a tool to get what you really want, your God is actually peace or joy or whatever. So that's just idolatry, treating Jesus like a tool to get what we really want, what we really treasure. So maybe even more subtle still and and dangerous for us is I think we can often act like we believe that salvation can be dependent on us, like we've got to get people interested, maintain their interest. I mean, do we really believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that the Spirit's at work in this? I mean, do you ever, when, when you're sharing with somebody about the gospel, you kind of like soft pedal certain things? You're like, ooh. We can kind of upplay some of the benefits and maybe more obviously attractive truths. God is love. Jesus came to give us abundant life, which again, those are true, wonderful things. But we can downplay things that are very real, like sin and hell. Those are real things real realities. We need to be faithful as witnesses. Okay, we don't, you know, market this thing. We need to communicate it clearly and faithfully. So whenever we ignore or avoid or deny hard truths in order to persuade or quote-unquote win, I remember hearing someone say something that stuck with me. What you win them with, you win them too. So if we win them with a consumer pick and choose gospel, like designer religion, like we like this part but not that part sort of Christianity, then that's the same kind of Christianity you're going to win them to. And no wonder they drift away when things get hard because you know what? They didn't sign up for that. So we are witnesses, not salesmen. Also, the call to be witnesses is because the gospel is news. It's not advice. Okay, so flip to 1 Corinthians um, 15. 
flip over to your right a little bit there, page um, 961, if you're using the Pew Bible. First Corinthians 15, 1, Paul writes and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So what is this good news? What's the gospel? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. This is objective historical reality here. This is news. Christ died for our sins, for my sins, for your sins, in accordance with the Scriptures. He's the Messiah that was prophesied, and He came and He did it. That He was buried, like really died in our place on the cross. He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, vindicating all of His claims. And then He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the writing of 1 Corinthians, though some have, have died, have fallen asleep, euphemism for death. So do you see how the gospel is historical news? It's fact. It's what happened. The gospel's not a self, self-help plan. Five steps to a new you. Seven keys to new life. Okay, that might seem more practical, you know, sometimes, but advice can only take you so far. I don't know about you, but I was dead in my sins. I was like incorrigibly selfish and prideful. We are bent and broken. We are guilty and defiled and in need of forgiveness and cleansing. We need to hear good news of something that has been done for us about that. Not some three-step plan for what we can do to fix ourselves. And then when we receive that good news, it's the best news in the world because this debt of sin has been totally canceled and paid for. We've been reconciled to God by the blood of the cross. It covers our sin. Then we carry that good news. We've got something to share with others. So Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. He's mighty to save. He won that victory on the cross, and we've got something to say because of it. So this is not just a subjective, you know, this is how Jesus helped me feel better and have some more inner peace, you know, story of my experience. Though, again, those are good things. Our 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 lived-out experience of the gospel is a powerful testimony. We should share our stories with other people, okay? But sometimes sharing our story, it can be easily dismissed, right? Oh, I'm glad glad to hear that helps you. You know, I don't don't deny that it's helpful for you. It's just not for me. So what do you say at that point? Well, you have news. Okay, so like, but, but what do you do with Jesus? What if he actually is who he said he is? What do, you, what do you do with the resurrection? I mean, I guess you could say that the disciples stole the body and they just made the whole thing up, but you know the disciples, they, they, they actually died. Like, they went to their death believing this. If they actually knew it was a hoax because they pulled it off, do you think they would die for it? This is like something that happened. Or... 
more at an existential level. So, but where did your life come from? From what if there is a God, and what if He, what what if He's like this? What if He's spoken? What if He's He's come down so that we would know what He's like and to deal with our greatest problem? Like, wh- where did your guilt come from? Why is that a universal human experience? Because we're made in the image of God, and we've all wanted our own kingdom to come, and we feel guilt because we are rejecting his law and his way. And that guilt is a little voice saying, you need rescue, you need forgiveness, you need reconciliation. And Jesus brings it. So we're empowered by Jesus, by the Spirit, to be witnesses. Point number two. And I want you to see what this looks like a little bit here in the early church. So flip back to Acts now. And rather than going back to chapter 1, stop at chapter 4. Acts 4.18. So, you know, Peter and company, they're preaching the, the good news and it's ruffling some feathers, and, you know, they get brought in, and, you know, these leaders want to shut them up, and so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We've witnessed these things. How, how can we keep our mouths shut? That's the kind of witnesses we should aspire to be. Like, don't you want to pray for that kind of bold, unflappable courage? Like, oh, that we would feel the kind of necessity that they did because it was so real to them what they'd seen and heard. So maybe if you turned it around, you could say if your mouth is silent, maybe... Maybe we've lost sight of what Jesus has done. Maybe our experience of the reality of what Jesus has done, the wonder, the grace, the mercy of the cross needs to be rekindled, right? So if our mouth is silent, maybe we need to get our eyes on Jesus, our eyes on the cross, our ears tuned to the the good news of the gospel. Then we won't be able to keep silent about what we've seen and heard. So we're empowered by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, to be Jesus' witnesses. And then last point, to be all things to all people. And where does that come from? What well, comes from the end of verse 8? Because this gospel is to be taken, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So if you're familiar at all with the book of Acts, you know, this chronicle of the the early church and its founding and development and growth, you know that this verse is almost like a table of contents for the rest of the book of Acts. So chapters 1 to 7 kind of focuses on Jerusalem, mainly Judea and Samaria, roughly chapters 8 to 12, and then to the end of the earth in chapters 13 to 28. So in Jerusalem, that's where it all got started. Started with the Jews among the Jews. Lots of amazing things happened. 3,000 become... Christians on one day, and then soon it's 5,000, and there's some serious church growth going on, but not much is going on as far as Judea and Samaria. 
They needed a little nudge. And you know how it came? It came in the form of persecution. Okay, so chapter 7, Stephen boldly speaks out on Jesus' behalf, and he's martyred for it. He's stoned to death. And that outbreak of persecution, much at the hands of Saul, the zealous Pharisee Saul, got the believers moving out of their comfort zone, got them moving to Judea, which would have meant people who were culturally similar, close, and geographically close, to Samaria, which would mean people who are geographically close, but culturally or socially, ethnically distant. You see that? In other words, there were barriers to cross if those people were going to be reached, even though they're fairly close. I mean, you know what Jews thought of Samaritans, right? Do you remember in John 8, Jesus is, is you know, speaking and the Jews are really not happy about it. And they finally say, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? It was an insult to call him a Samaritan. This is racism in the first century. Again, it's not just an American thing. So to the end of the earth, so just to tell you, finish off this list here, to the end of the earth, which would mean people geographically distant and then culturally either close or culturally distant. But we're going to focus on Samaria. So back in verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons, but you. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses in Samaria. Which means you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. And you know what? Sometimes God will give, a good kick, give us a good kick in the pants to get us moving. That's what the persecution was for the early church to cross into Samaria in chapter 8. So again, Samaria meant crossing cultural racial barriers, um, it is built into the mission of the gospel itself. This is what the Holy Spirit intends to empower us to do. And it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because we're following Jesus. Jesus marched forward during his earthly ministry, and he's kicking down barriers left and right, wasn't he? Luke 10, the Good Samaritan, he's you know, hammering away at these cultural biases. Luke 17, the one leper that came back and said thank you, he was a Samaritan. Or John 4, the ultimate example of it. The Samaritan woman. He didn't have to cross. He didn't have to go through Samaria. Oh, but he had to go through Samaria. Jews always went around. But he had to because the gospel was going to be for everybody, for every people. And so he intentionally went across the barrier. And there were lots of other barriers there. Male, female. She's a woman with a past, with, a hist you know, with baggage. So he crosses those barriers for the sake of the gospel. And so if we're following Jesus, where do you think he's going to lead us? Well, it's certainly where he led Philip. This guy, I love this guy. Philip, <laughs> you know Philip? Okay, Tyler read a little bit about this guy in chapter 8. He's like one of my heroes. I love this guy. So he's this deacon evangelist type guy. First talked about in chapter 6. And oh man, Raise up some more Phillips, Lord. So persecution gets him moving. And listen, is persecution a good thing in and of itself? Like what Paul was doing? Oh, it's violent. 
horrible and unjust stuff. But listen, that persecution was a tool in the hand of a sovereign God who had a rescue plan for all peoples. It's how the gospel got to the Samaritans and later in chapter 8 to an Ethiopian eunuch and beyond. Okay, so I just wonder, I just wonder if God wants to use a Trump presidency and the racial and refugee immigrant issues that have been stirred up to kick the church in the pants toward greater efforts at racial unity and conspicuous love of unwelcome neighbors. So we need to see our mission field as not just those who are like us. Of course that's the natural thing to do. But who wants to live a, a merely natural life? Of course it's easier to just move about with your own tribe. But Jesus died for every tribe. So don't you want to live a supernatural life, one that can only be accounted for by the power of the Spirit of the living God? So if we're going to be witnesses to all peoples, especially those unlike us, we're going to need to be willing to move toward people that are, are unlike us and, quote-unquote, beef all things to all people. Have you ever heard somebody say, like kind of undermine that statement, like, well, you can't be all things to all people. Okay, time out. Like, if you've ever said that or if you've ever heard somebody say that, do you know that that's, like, to be all things to all people is actually what we're supposed to do? <laughs> It's, it's in the Bible, so let me just show you. Just so you see, this is a good thing. This is what we actually should be seeking to live out. So look at 1 Corinthians. You see why we need to study 1 Corinthians? Because we keep going there. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9. As we start to wrap this up, this is what we're called to do. So Paul is giving the example of his own life. And just like Jesus was a servant to all peoples, Paul is doing the exact same thing. <laughs> the same guy that was ravaging the church and carrying people off in prison, but after he met, the, met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he was totally changed and empowered by the Spirit. So verse 19, For though I am free from all, I'm not a slave of anybody, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out, Paul. You are a Jew. Hello. But do you see, he's so much in this third category. Like, I'm just, I'm a Christian, first and foremost. Of course, there are unique and wonderful riches of every culture and people. So we don't want to flatten all that. That's good. But ultimately, at the core, Paul is not a Jew or what? He's a Christian. So he's flexible. He knows who he is in Christ, and he can be flexible to reach any peoples. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. 
I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And lest you think that this is some kind of super apostolic Christianity, no, this is for ordinary Christians. Flip ahead to the end of this section in 1 Corinthians 10, 33. He says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's for all of us to follow this path, following Jesus, following those who follow Jesus. Okay, so here's the thing. We've got to stop waiting for people unlike us to come to us. Empowered by the Spirit, we need to move toward them. Isn't it a good thing God didn't wait for us to come to him? Anybody? He came and took on flesh and blood. He spoke our language. He crossed infinite barriers to come to earth. He crossed previously uncrossed barriers while on earth. I mentioned some of them already, like the Samaritan woman. But, I mean, he's, he's healing demon-possessed Gentiles and unclean of all stripes and all this stuff. And he suffered and he died so the witness of Jesus, his life, was the witness of his very life was the crossing of these barriers for the sake of love. So if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, then you're a witness. The witness that belongs to Jesus is empowered by the Spirit to cross the barriers and be servant of all that you might win as many as possible. Okay, So we've got to stop excusing our laziness We've got to stop complaining that the onus is on us. Like, why do I have to move to? Why do I always have to make the first move, make all the adjustments? Is that ever well up within? Like, no, no, no. Oh, man, I was running the other way. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came after me. Like I'm shaking my fist in his face and he just overcame all that rebellion and he took care of my sin. He's given me his promises. I've got relationship with him. My future is secure. Like I know who I am. And so, of course, I'd be happy to cross some barriers to try to give that good news to somebody else. So let's say you live in an apartment complex with people from another ethnic group. Move toward them. Have them to your table. If you don't cook, invite them out. Go to their favorite restaurant. Go to their table. Be willing to meet them on their turf. Eat their food. Learn their traditions. I mean, we, again, this is in the context. This was going to be last Sunday, okay? So we should just love all of our neighbors, right? Indiscriminately. But we were talking about crossing racial barriers and healing divides and that kind of thing. So that's why the application is a little specific here, okay? So how about at your work? Look around you. You see some people that are not like you? Sit down with them and ask them questions and get to know them. Understand their experience. Listen, learn, so that you can genuinely understand and love them well and speak up for them if they're ever the butt of a stereotype or of discrimination. Show them that Christians are different from the cultural stereotypes. And you know what? I think that's even more important right now in our cultural moment 
Because most of your neighbors view Christianity in the way that Donald Trump talks about it. And that's not Christianity. Or it's a really lopsided, distorted view. Okay, Paula White doesn't speak for us. Thank you very much. That's not the gospel. That's institutionalized selfishness. So we need to actually make ourselves distinct from these cultural stereotypes so that people see what real Christianity is all about and we are bridging these divides rather than continuing to feed them. Okay. So, let's be done with the smoke screens for our own comfort zone seeking, our laziness, like, oh, I'm an introvert. Well, so am I. Okay. Jesus is big enough to help introverts. Praise God. Spirit is powerful enough to get introverts to talk to people. Okay? I'm testimony of that. I'm not good at, okay, neither am I. I don't know about, I don't know anyone, okay. God's in the equation. How about we start praying about this and look around, gee, I wonder if God actually, if this is what Acts 1-8 says, I wonder if God's going to maybe answer those prayers and put somebody in your life. I think it could happen. So there is Holy Spirit power to overcome these obstacles And let's make sure there's no old grudges or prejudices, no cheap caricatures or stereotypes guiding or inhibiting us. Okay, so we're talking about missional empowerment by Jesus, by the Spirit, for all peoples. Do you need grace for that? (laughs) That was a question. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, me too. So let's come to the table now, brothers and sisters, and ask for that grace. I mean, isn't this where we receive it? We receive it at the table that only Jesus' life and death in our place, the table that he set for us. So we are kind of a motley crew. What in the world are we doing together? We're here because of Jesus, because he's dealt with our sin, because he's made us new, because he's made us a new community. And we're still prone to wander. So we need grace. We need forgiveness. We need new strength. We need new empowerment, right? So we come and own that. We look in, oh, Lord, help me deal with my prejudices, my sense of superiority or entitlement or whatever. I'm blind to it so often. Humble me. Lord, I'm so prone to be, you know, comfort zone seeking and I just want to stay in my own little bubble and all this stuff. So just change me. Forgive me for that. Look in. That's what the gospel teaches us to be honest about our sin. And then look up. Boy, there's grace for this. There's forgiveness for this. There's strength for walking in newness of life because of Jesus, because of his blood, his body broken and his blood spilled. And then we look around. And this produces beautiful unity, diverse unity in the church. And then we reach out and say, hey, come on in. God welcomed me in. I would love to be his hands and feet to welcome you in. Oh God, you are the God of reconciliation. You are the ultimate peacemaker. And we have kicked against your righteous rule and your right to rule as the king of the universe. 
And we thank you that rather than giving us what we deserve, you gave us your son. And he died so that we could have peace with you. So that all that ugly rebellion could be forgiven and paid for. So we thank you for the reconciling grace that we will celebrate and partake of be reminded of as we participate in your table. And we pray that that would so fill us that it would just spill out to our relationships, the way that we interact with each other inside the church and with those that are outside that need to know about this good news. So would you please meet with us and shine the light in our hearts by your spirit where we need to confess things and repent of them and Find your grace washing us clean and and making us new. And also empower us, Lord, as we remember your death for us and its unifying, reconciling purposes and power. So we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.